0: Once again, we are looking at Daniel chapter 3 this morning, and before we dig into this famous story from the Old Testament, I want to share with you a famous story from the early days of the church. So, After the days of Acts and the apostles, into the earliest days of the history of the church, there's a famous story of a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was martyred, which means he was a man who died for his faith. Polycarp was bishop of a city called Smyrna. He was the leader of the church in that town. And that name might sound familiar to you because when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, Jesus told him to write letters to seven churches that make up chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. And one of the churches addressed by Jesus in one of those letters was the church in Smyrna. And Polycarp became bishop of that church, and it is even uh, reported in early church history that Polycarp was taught by the Apostle John himself. So this is a man who was very near to the time of the Apostles, a man who heard the Apostle John speak, and when he was an old man a time of persecution arose. And at first, he fled from those who were seeking to take him captive and to subject him to persecution. But eventually, his pursuers caught up with him, and he gave himself up to them, and they took him prisoner. And his captors tempted him to call Caesar Lord and to offer sacrifice but he refused. As part of his persecution, he was brought to the stadium where there was a crowd gathered. And he was told to dishonor Christ and, quote, swear by the fortune of Caesar. But again, he refused. When he was pressed for a reason why he would not do this seemingly small thing, He famously said, and I quote, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He resolutely confessed himself a Christian and was put to death. Now, there are two ways that people can look at that story. On the one hand, you can say, clearly, Polycarp's steadfast faith in Christ, even at the cost of his life, is evidence that Jesus is real, that Jesus is alive, that the gospel is true. Why else would somebody be willing to give up so much? And on the other hand, someone could look at that story and say, if there's a God... Why didn't he rescue Polycarp? Why would he let this man who had served him for so many years, who was an old man who was being subjected to persecution and to death, why didn't God rescue him? Why didn't God deliver him? If there's a God, surely he would have shown up in that moment. Now, I mentioned that story, the story of Polycarp, Because in one way, it's very different than the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do get delivered from their persecutors. They do get rescued from the burning, fiery furnace. Polycarp was not rescued from death. But these two stories also have something more important, something more fundamental in common. All four of these men trusted in the same God and believed that it was worth being faithful to Him whether they lived or whether they died. So let's look with fresh eyes at the story of Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a story that starts with King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, every once in a while I'll point out how these chapter divisions in our Bible, which were added years later after these books were written, uh, the chapter divisions are really helpful for finding our our way and finding our place, but sometimes they keep us from seeing how things are connected. We read chapter 2 and then we stop and then we come back tomorrow or next week or whatever and we read chapter 3. There's a connection between these two chapters That was pointed out to me years ago that I don't think I'd ever seen uh, before somebody said it. And that's this. At the end of chapter 2, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar's vision, his dream that he had had of a golden image, or excuse me, a four-part image, a golden head, chest of silver, torso of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay, that in that vision, the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar. And then the very next story we read in Daniel chapter 3 is of Nebuchadnezzar building an image of gold from top to bottom. Think that's a coincidence? No, that's not a coincidence. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's being defiant. He's living in denial of what God revealed to him through his dream. The dream said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but after you is coming another kingdom, an inferior kingdom, one of silver. We know that's the Medo-Persians. And then after them is going to come another kingdom, the kingdom of bronze. That's the Greeks. And then there's going to come another kingdom, the kingdom of iron. And that's going to be the kingdom of Rome. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image and basically says, nah, My kingdom's going to last forever. My kingdom's not going anywhere. I'm the king. And so he is living in denial of what God has revealed to him, and he is demonstrating extreme arrogance. And Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance... Is, is going to come to a climax in chapter 4, but it's already on display here in chapter 3 because he commands all these people to gather together before this image that he's set up that is almost certainly meant to represent his kingdom, if not him himself. And he says, whenever the music plays, all of you have to bow down and worship this image. I don't care who you are, I don't care where you're from, doesn't matter what language you speak, everyone in my kingdom who has been gathered here, all of you have to bow down and worship this image. Now one of the reasons why that's arrogant for Nebuchadnezzar to do that is because back in chapter 2 when Daniel was interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, he told him this. He said, you, O king... The king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Notice twice there, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you this kingdom. God has given you the authority that you enjoy. The people who are under your dominion, even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air that are under your sway, they have been put there by a greater king, by the king of the universe, by the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is not acting like he is under any God's authority, certainly not the one God. God's authority. Instead, he is acting like he has ultimate authority, and he can command who people must worship, and when, and why. It's arrogant for Nebuchadnezzar to assume such authority. Now, we might also wonder, as we read the first part of this story, why were so many of the people willing to go along with Nebuchadnezzar's command? I mean, The highlight of the story is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to go along with the king's command. But why were so many people so willing to go along with the king's command? And the reason is this. When you are faced with a choice of do this or die, you have to have a strong, clear Bedrock conviction that you are absolutely unwilling to violate, or you are going to cave. Right? I mean, you know, it's one thing to stand up for something, it's one thing to stand up in a meeting and say, I don't like this idea. Another thing to write a letter, you know, to a politician and say, I don't think you should have voted that way. Another thing to, you know, share your opinion about something on Facebook or whatever. It is another thing entirely to say. Throw me in jail, put me to death, I don't care, I'm not doing what you say. You have to have a strong, bedrock, non-negotiable conviction to do something like that. And the people in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar didn't have that. And the reason they didn't have that on this issue is because they were polytheists. They worshipped a whole bunch of gods. And when you worship a whole bunch of gods, what's one more? When you've got maybe five images standing around your house, when there are maybe 15 images spread throughout the city, you worship at different times in different places and give them different things, the king sets up one more and says, Worship it or dies? Yeah, sure. Why not? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not polytheists. They didn't worship a host of gods. They worshipped only One God. And they knew that worshiping one God and one God alone was a non-negotiable. That was a bedrock conviction that had been drilled into them through the scriptures. And there were men in the kingdom who picked up on this. So in verse 8, it says there were certain Chaldeans who came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They, They come to the king and they say, look, king, you made this law, right? And and you set the punishment for it, right? Well, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not listening to you. They're not obeying your law. They're not worshiping your image. They're not doing what you said. Now, we don't know where Daniel was in all of this. We know Daniel wouldn't have compromised either. Right? He didn't compromise in chapter 1. He's not going to compromise in chapter 6 when the king says, you can't pray to any god but me, or I'm going to throw you in the lion's den. We know Daniel wouldn't have compromised. We just don't know where Daniel was. Apparently he wasn't around or nobody noticed him. But for whatever reason, these three men are the three who are noticed, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they bring them to the attention of the king. And so the king calls them into his presence, and he gives them a second chance says, look, here's what you have to do. When you hear the music, you have to bow down and worship this image that I have made. And if you do, then we're good. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. You're going to die. And then we see again Nebuchadnezzar's extreme arrogance. When at the end of chapter 15, he says, and who, or excuse me, verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's not a God more powerful than me, or not a God more powerful than the God who's on my side, whatever it is he has in mind. He has apparently forgotten the lesson of chapter 2, right? That the God of Daniel, who's also the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is a God who's proved himself able to do things that nobody else in the kingdom of Babylon is able to do. He doesn't think anybody can deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they know better. They say in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And they say, verse 17, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Let's stop there. They have confidence that their God is able to deliver them, even if the king would seek to throw them into this fiery furnace. Now, where does that confidence come from? Where does that assurance come from? How do they know that God can do this? Well, for one thing, they know that the stories of the Old Testament are not just stories. They know that the Exodus, when God delivered the people of Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh and destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, they know that's not just a story. They know that's where their people came from. That's how God formed them into a people, into a nation. They know the stories of the judges, how time and time again, though God's people sinned and rebelled against God, when they cried out to God for mercy, he would send someone, he would send a judge to rescue them, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. He had delivered his people from the Assyrian army when one night 185,000 men of the Assyrian army were killed by the Lord as they camped outside the city. They knew those stories and they knew that they weren't just stories, that they were true accounts of how God had delivered his people. And they also knew, almost certainly, what the prophet Isaiah had said. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied over a hundred years before the time when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing this trial in Babylon. And here's what Isaiah had said. In chapter 41, he said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If ever there were a group of men who embodied that command, fear not, for I am with you. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just a couple chapters later, Isaiah said, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not. Consume you. They knew, beyond shadow of a doubt, that their God was able to deliver them. But notice what they say next. They said, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not. But if not. Why do they say, but if not? Because they know that God does not have to deliver them. They have no control over God. They can't force his hand. And God doesn't always do what we want him to do or what we expect him to do. He doesn't always do what we want him to do in the time that we want him to do it. So they're not saying we know that God will and must and has to do this in this moment. We know he can. We believe that he will, but he might not. And then they say, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't say, we're trusting God to deliver us, And if we get to the edge of that furnace and he hasn't rescued us, okay, then then we'll bow. No. They say, even if he doesn't rescue us, there is no way we are bowing down to your image. Why not? Because they believe That their God exists, that He's real, that He's able to deliver them, but that even if He doesn't deliver them, that He's worthy of their worship, their faithfulness, their devotion. They had no doubt drilled into them what the Jewish people call the Shema, in in Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They knew the Ten Commandments where God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They knew those scriptures. They believed in that God. And they were unwilling, no matter what it cost them, to betray Him, to be unfaithful to Him. Now, their conviction, their confidence, their faith, their courage is inspiring. Right? Does it doesn't make you want to do something like this. I mean, nobody wants to be put in that situation, but you want to be able to stand for something. right? You want to be able to say, I trust the Lord like that. I hope I trust the Lord like that. I want to have that kind of courage and confidence. And that comes from knowing and believing the Scriptures. Knowing and believing who God is and what God has done. And being convinced That he is worthy of giving him your life, even if it costs you your life. That's the kind of faith that we want to have. That's the kind of faith that God calls us to have. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't give Nebuchadnezzar the answer that he was looking for. So, he was furious. He was angry. He ordered the furnace to be heated Seven times more than it was normally heated, which of course was completely unnecessary, just a sign of how furious he was. And it was so hot, and the king was in such a hurry, that even the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to the fire were themselves killed by the flames. And the three men fell bound in their clothes into the fiery furnace. Now, to all appearances, to anybody watching this moment, there was no chance whatsoever that these men could have survived. That's part of why we're told that the men who carried them up there perished. They didn't even fall into the furnace. They just got close enough to it that they died. Surely the men who are cast into the furnace are going to die. But Nebuchadnezzar got perhaps the shock of his life When he looked into the burning fiery furnace and saw not three men bound, but four men unbound, walking around, unharmed. And he said, one of the men had the appearance like a son of the gods, some kind of divine figure, not not any ordinary man. Now... What do we make of all of this? Well, first of all, God has clearly showed up and delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has rescued them from the fire. And how has he done it? Who is this fourth man? Well, the text doesn't tell us unequivocally. There's no clear spelling out. Here's who this is. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, here in verse 25, says... He's like a son of the gods, which to our ears sounds a lot like the son of God, right? But then later he says uh, that God has sent an angel to deliver his people. And that's the kind of thing that God does too. God sends an angel to rescue his people um, in the Old Testament. That's not uncommon. Or this could be the son of God himself, what we call the pre-incarnate Christ. Before he took on flesh... The Son of God has always existed. He's eternal. He's the Savior. He's the Deliverer. This could be Him showing up in the burning, fiery furnace. We can't say for sure one way or the other, but what we do know is that whether it was Christ before His incarnation or whether it was an angel sent by God Himself, God delivered His people. And when He delivered them, He didn't just sort of kind of mostly good enough save them. He saved them to the uttermost. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, when it's talking about Christ, our high priest, it says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. There is no limit to Christ's salvation. He lives forever. He's offered the perfect sacrifice. He's the eternal Son of God. He's a permanent high priest. And so His salvation that he has secured for us, is beyond anything that the priests of the Old Testament were able to mediate and provide. He saves to the uttermost, and that's how God saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. Because when they come out of the burning, fiery furnace, not only are they alive, they're not even burned. And not only are they not burned, They're not even singed. Their clothing has not even been singed. And not only have they not even been singed, but, I mean, you know, you spend a little time around a campfire, what are you going to smell like? You're going to smell like a campfire. you're not even in it. They come out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. God has utterly, completely, totally delivered them from the fire that the king meant to destroy them. That is how God saves. I mean, think back to the Exodus. When God saved his people from Pharaoh and his army, how many members of the army made it through the Red Sea and kept chasing the Israelites through the wilderness? Half of them? Quarter of them? Handful of them? None of them. God completely, utterly, totally delivered them from the Egyptians. How does He save us? Jesus laid down His life for us on the cross and rose again on the third day for our salvation. How much of our salvation did He accomplish? Half of it? We've got to meet Him halfway? Three quarters? 95%? No. All of it. There's zero condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because you have no sins left to pay for, because he has paid for them all perfectly, totally, fully, and completely. We have the certain promise of eternal life, of resurrection, glorified bodies, and living in the presence of Christ forever. At his return. Why? Because his salvation that he accomplished was complete. It was total. He saves us to the uttermost. Now look at how Nebuchadnezzar explains what happened in verse 28. When he sees that they've not been burned, they don't even smell like smoke. In verse 28 it says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel And delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get everything right, but he does get something right here. What has happened? God delivered his servants. What were his servants doing? They were trusting in their God. They refused to worship any other God. They yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their God because they trusted him. That's what God calls us to do, right? Is to trust him. To believe that he exists, to believe that he is for us, to believe that he has provided for us Full and complete salvation. To put our lives, our souls, our eternities, our everything into His hands. And say, we believe that you are able. You're able to deliver us. You're able to forgive our sins. You're able to raise us from the dead. You're able to secure for us an eternal salvation. That's how we are called to respond to the gospel, how we are called to respond to what Christ has done for us. And it is that faith which we are called to walk in day to day. But the point of this whole story is that God is able to deliver those who trust Him and refuse to be coerced into any form of idolatry, to worshiping anyone or anything else other than him. But that even if he does not deliver us in the moment, we should trust him and act faithfully. And here's something else that, that we know and that I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew as well. You might have noticed that they say in verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not. How did they say he will deliver us, but if not? How how can they say he's going to deliver us out of your hand, but if he doesn't deliver us out of your hand? What do they mean? I think think what they mean is that they know that God has another way of delivering them from the hand of the king than delivering them from the fiery furnace in that moment. Because you might remember that Jesus, when he was speaking to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, pointed out that we ought to recognize the reality of the resurrection, even from some of the oldest parts of the Old Testament, for example, where God says that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have left this world. God is the God of the living, Jesus said, and not of the dead. God is a God who raises his people from the dead. In fact, later in Daniel chapter 12, we're even going to be given uh, one of the clearest statements about resurrection in the Old Testament where it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew in some way Maybe even they knew in a clear way about the promise of resurrection. And they were saying to the king, our God is going to deliver us from your hand, even if we die first. Because even if we die in your fiery furnace, you, you don't win. That's not the end of the story. We ought to know that even better than they do because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who himself has been raised from the dead and whose resurrection secures our resurrection so that we, like Polycarp, can stand before those who would say, you must deny Christ or pay with your life. And we can say, even if he doesn't deliver me here and now, I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'm not going to give in to the pressure that you're putting upon me, even if you bring it into my life, because I know something you don't. I know that my Lord and Savior died, rose, lives even now, and one day will raise me from the dead to live with Him. So even if you put me to death, You won't have the last word. Jesus will. And my confidence is in him. Let's pray.